hi, everybody. This is Tony Marcolini and my co-host, Seamus McDonough. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. Today we are joined with, I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to just ooze, you know, uh, fangirl-like uh, over our next guest. So uh, he, he's a legendary uh, artist in the comic book genre. I don't think... I, you know, I don't think once I say his name, anyone is not going to know him, especially if you follow uh, follow that genre. But Dan Jurgens is here today. Um, you know him from Booster Gold and Spider Man and Batman and Superman. Uh, so welcome, Dan. I, I'm I'm so excited you're here. Well, thank you, Tony. It's very nice to be here. So the first, I guess, the first question I have. I, because when I, when I follow your career, you know, way back from the beginning, I mean, of course, you know, I think you jumped in uh, early on, you know, with established characters long before you got to create Booster Gold and some of the characters that you've created uh, on your own. Uh, so what was it like jumping into already an already established character? Well, it was... Um... I was very fortunate in that uh, when I first started with DC Comics, which would have been, say, late 1981, I believe it was, um, I started on a book they had at that time called Warlord, which was, you know, kind of the story of a, of a guy in armor who was living in the center of the earth, sort of Jules Verne style, uh, with dinosaurs and everything like that. And the advantage to starting on something that is already established is that it allows you to concentrate on the look of your work rather than also trying to have to figure out exactly what the look of all the characters should be because they are established. And that allows you as an artist really to focus more on your drawing because in those early days, almost all of us, as we look at the work we produced in that time, don't like to look back on it. I mean, <laughs> the faults are really quite obvious. So Starting on an established character like that allows you to really focus on your skills. And then, I mean, it wasn't that long uh, after you started with DC that you had the opportunity to create Booster Gold. And what's that? I mean, did you have to go to them and say, hey, I want to create this new character? Or did you just have kind of license to, to do what you wanted? Well, at that time, um, they had a very uh, much an open door policy. And it was... They, they were clearly looking to stretch a little bit and do some different things with, you know, different um, characters and things like that and to have bring in some new ideas and new characters. So I just said, well, you know, I've got this thought in mind and it's, it's about a character who perhaps is a little more human than a lot of what you have, which is like, say, Superman and Batman, who are near, nearly perfect. Um, but this is someone who is also, in addition to trying to be a superhero, wants to make a living at it because he wasn't born, you know, the child of a millionaire or anything else. And, and so we talked it out and they said, yeah, let's, let's, we like it. Let's, we like the idea. Let's um, take a swing and see what happens. And we went from there. And uh, it, it was a great time to be in comics because we were able to try a lot of different things. Do you have a special affinity for Booster Gold? Because I think that was the first character that was all you, that you had created. Am I wrong? No, you are absolutely right. And yes, um, I have very much in a personal affinity for the character and probably always will, because I think 
um, what happens is, and I think this is especially true of writer artists, is that when we create these characters, there is so much of us in it that it almost becomes sort of a uh, representational avatar in a way of the creator because most characters have a specific writer and a specific artist who create them. And that's more of a blend. But when it's one person who really does it and is responsible for every aspect of that character. I mean, at that time I was even handling the letters pages and interacting with the readers who would write in. Um, I think, yeah, there's a lot of me in it. Only the good parts though, none of the bad. <laughs> well, you went on, I think right after that uh, to, to like Flash Gordon and the Justice League, which is a major, which was a major part of DC Comics at the time. Yeah, and you know, I, I am also someone who's always been fortunate enough to work on um, multiple projects at the same time. It's always helped to keep me fresh. So yes, I was able to do Flash Gordon. I was able to do Justice League. I was able to do Superman. And, and I think what happens is, again, this gets back to being a writer artist. When you are a writer artist, you are so invested in that one book or that one property that sometimes you just need to step back, take a deep breath and work on something else for a bit, just so it doesn't you know, swallow you whole. You need to have that, that ability to stretch creatively and, and go try some different things, even while you're so invested in that one project. Okay, I think Seamus is trying to get my attention. <laughs> Seamus, did you? Uh... I'll mute this, so sorry, sorry, sorry. So these are unique characters. How could you make a mistake? I, I know you, you've just done this for years and, and you've perfected this whole craft, but it just, it just fascinates me. You just said I, not to make any mistakes. How could you make a mistake? Seamus, a lot of what we do is making mistakes. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, and it's, you know, there's no such thing as the perfect piece of work. And, um, there are always things I look back on and wish I would have been better at when I did it. And in fact, you know, to, to stay on the Booster Gold team we were exploring a little bit is I was still very much in learning mode as a writer at that time. And as I look back on it now, you know, I can certainly see over the course of the first 10 issues what I wish I would have done differently or what I would have done differently then if I had the same skill set I had today. And, and some of it is just that there is so much that goes into it, whether it's drawing a panel somewhat incorrectly or a particular figure or kind of mishandling a storyline that you really would have been able to make a lot stronger if you had a better skill set. I mean, that's out there for all of us to know, right? And when I say that, it means that all of us as writers and artists, we have this conversation all the time. Um, you know, we don't hit here uh, on book one, page one with a perfect skill set, our sins are sort of on display and it does take a while to really figure it out and get it to the point where it works well. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, I have to talk about Superman because you did a, a, about a 10 year run, I guess, for DC almost exclusively doing Superman. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if you were doing other books at the same time, but I, I thought you were kind of exclusively on Superman at that point. Um, I mean, and Superman's my favorite, uh, honestly, of, uh, I think, any character ever in comic books. It's a great uh, choice. <laughs> and 
I mean, the day that you heard you were going to take over, they call you up and they want you to take over that title. What's that day like? Well, there actually, there are two different days where that happened. And, and one is um, they first asked me to draw the book um, working with a different writer, which I was on board with. Um, the writer was actually a, a gent by the name of George Perez, who had been an accomplished artist himself, um, but also had been doing writing work at D.C., and, and so, you know, that was one, that was a phone call that left me very enthusiastic. It's like, okay, great. I get to draw Superman uh, and become part of that family that had worked on the character since 1938 and, and, you know, had the chance to add to him visually. George had to step aside a few months later. And then when the call came in to uh, ask me if I wanted to write Superman as well, that was a little different. Because, you know, I was totally confident in my skills as an artist, not as confident in those skills as a writer. And so I hung up the phone and kind of thought, oh, man, there might be way more downside than upside here. So um, fortunately, that did not turn out to be the case. And it, it gave me the opportunity, you know, when, when you work, I'm babbling a little bit, forgive me, but this will make sense. When you work on a character as an artist, you think about how to portray them visually. How do you get that essence of their character across? Superman carries himself in such a way that he has a certain sense of nobility and majesty. And in fact, that big red cape almost makes him feel a little bit royal. When you then write the character, you have to think much more in depth about who the character is, how they react in certain situations, what they do say, and even what they don't say. And that then is what allows you to really build as a writer artist, I think, this really um, holistic view of the character because you're coming up with it both visually and in terms of the written word. Yeah. So I, I have to ask this and I, and I wouldn't defend you, but did you go back when you took it over? Like, and literally, because like, I think I'm very much into research and I think if I had been tasked with a responsibility like that, I would have like literally gone back to like 1938 and read every comic book, you know, Superman leading up to that. Is that, is that the kind of thing you did? Or it's just like, hey, I'm familiar enough and I'm going to just jump in and take it in whatever direction I want. Um, there, it was actually a blend. And, and some of it is because it would be almost impossible to have every story going back to 1938. But I think what I have always done, regardless of character, is pulled out a run of issues, be it um, from say 1938 to 1940 with Superman or uh, a little bit earlier in the mid 60s or whatever time frame of whatever character by different creators and really make sure I identify, I identify what I think it is that makes that character work best. Um, and it's all about building what I call the character list, which is, you know, I always have this list of traits for a character. You know, some of it will be, who do they like? Who do they hate? Who do they love? And it even gets down to, you know, what's their favorite pizza joint? It, it builds that identity of character. And yes, that always requires some research. It also allows you to see uh, some points in a character's run where perhaps it didn't work so well. And you get to see why that happened. So yes, I always do, um, pretty deep dive on characters that I work on because, you know, a lot of talented people have come along well before me 
and found a way to make it work. And that's what builds the character. And as a creator, you want to understand that. Now, the death of Superman, your idea? Yeah, you know, it's with the process of creation, you talk about a lot of different ideas. And, you know, we had multiple, we had four titles, Superman titles at the time. And we talk about possible ideas. And we had talked about a couple of times this idea of the death of Superman in which you could say a lot about the character if he's not there. The problem is we just never had a story to go with it. And, and eventually, yes, we came up with that story and it would allow us to really address Superman's meaning to us and to readers such as yourself and to the world by taking him out of the books, just as that's the process we go through as individuals if anyone close to us dies. Now, when you came, did you come back to DC? Because I want to get to, and I know Seamus was talking to me about Spider-Man. He think he's more of a Marvel comics guy. Seamus uh, mm -hmm. wants to, to, I think, uh, talk a little bit about Spider-Man with you. But uh, I'm more interested when, when the, you went back to DC, because you were gone for a bit with Marvel, and then you go back. Were you there for when they did the kind of the reboot, like the 52, and they start, restarted everything with one? Yeah, so the, the New 52, uh, if that's what you're referring to, I think, yes, took place yes. in 2011. And yes, I was back for that. Um, actually did about five or six issues on Superman at that time. And then by 2016, we came back with um, what we called Rebirth. And that's when I took over Action Comics, uh, which we were publishing twice a month at that time. And there was also a Superman title where we really kind of built in, in I think, um, a new era for Superman, where we focus very much on the traits that make him the what I think is just about the best character in comics, and also added to uh, sort of the tapestry of his character by giving him a son. And that's what we did back in 2016. Now, when they first did the New 52, they broke, they didn't have Superman in that new universe. I mean, Superman was not with Lois Lane. Right. right. And he has this relationship with Wonder Woman, I want to say. Um, and what I mean, what I, I remember as a reader of, of comic books, when that happened, I was really upset. I'm like, you just can't. I mean, Superman belongs with Lois Lane. I mean, I, I was actually upset by that change. Did you feel quite the same or? Uh, yeah, I, I was certainly on that same path. And one of the reasons I was is because if we go back to 1938, Action Comics number one comes out, and that's the first appearance of Superman, right? It's it's a comic that, if you have it now, is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. We all wish we had one in our, you know, desk drawer, and most of us don't. I certainly don't. But the whole point is, is that with Action number one, we saw basically three characters introduced in that comic. Clark Kent and Superman, who are the same character, but I'll count them as two different ones here, as well as Lois Lane. And Lois's introduction in 1938 as an independent, fully functional reporter working on her own was somewhat a, a radical notion for that time. And she is as every bit as important to the Superman-Clark dynamic as is Superman and, and Clark themselves, because it, it is Lois that really helps to humanize Superman with Clark kind of in the middle. As, as the touch point that, that pulls it all together. And I think that 
in that awareness that there is always that bond um, that I would have stuck with because I think Lois's connection to Superman says so much about the both of them, so much about Superman's attitude toward humanity and Earth that I think you just have to keep it. That was just my view. And, and ultimately, we got back to that. Was there backlash? I mean, was I alone? Did, I, did the cheese stand alone? Did I stand alone back then in my feeling? Or did you get a lot of backlash? No, you did not. Uh, there were a lot of people who felt that way. And by the same token, when we then brought back the Superman-Lois Lane connection with the Rebirth stuff in 2016, there were a lot of people who really who were really into the idea of Superman and Wonder Woman as a couple. And then they got upset. So... It, it just goes to show you can't make everybody happy. And um, I, I, you know, I think you could have the conversation as to which was best, whether it's the Superman Wonder Woman connection or the Superman, you know, Lois connection. But for me, Superman Lois should always win um, because Superman being with, um, you know, Superman is from Krypton and, an alien, even though he was raised as an Earth kid uh, in Kansas. But Superman's connection to Lois really says everything there is to say about his connection to the rest of us. And it is him trying to be human and represent humanity in the best possible way. That's true. Um, wow, I didn't really think about it that way, but yeah. Um, so... I think it's important that we talk about Batman and Spider-Man both. Uh, so I'm going to kind of turn over to, I think, Spider-Man. Because there, there comes a point right after 10 years doing Superman that you move over to Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know Seamus is a big Spider-Man guy. So I think I'm going to... Seamus, do you have any questions about Spider-Man? Just, just uh, one, one question. Did you, know Stan, did you know Stan Lee and Steve Ditko? Did you know them? I never got the chance to meet Steve Ditko. I had met Stan, actually worked on a couple of projects that Stan wrote. Uh, but unfortunately, I never had the pleasure of meeting Steve Ditko. And uh, really, if I were to um, write down a list of the five people that I wish I would have been able to have met during my time in the business, uh, Ditko's name would probably be number one on the list that I always regretted that I didn't get that opportunity. Mm. What was there? What was uh, what was Stan's inspiration? You think? You mean Stan's inspiration for Spider-Man or for everything he did? Everything. I, I think you know. Um, I, I think Stan. If we go back to the to the early days of the Marvel Universe with Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and so many more, that the thing that Stan latched onto was this idea of making characters who were less perfect and more real than what DC had at that time. His characters were more human. And, and he was able to do that across the board, whether it was, you know, um, the Fantastic Four, where you had, even had a character like The Thing, who had this tremendous power, but to, he regretted it because he'd look in the mirror and see this rocky sort mm -hmm. of visual um, that the cosmic rays had turned him into and he would have great regret for that and want to get back to his human Ben Grimm self. And he'd have the Hulk, which is Bruce Banner who would turn into the raging beast and everything and always want to revert back to his human self. And I, I think what he built in 
is that level of sensitivity where we uh, felt sympathy for some of these characters, even Spider-Man losing his Uncle Ben, and at the same time, um, in humanizing them, that is what allowed us to relate to it even more. And as Stan kept fueling all of this, he created this vast uh, Marvel list of characters that we could get excited in, that it became its own universe. And he had so many great artists who were working there at the time that helped him do that, mm. that you felt like you were in a club. You know, when you read DC Comics at that time, you felt like you were a reader. When you were reading Marvel Comics in those days, man, you felt like you were part of the club almost. You know, like, you know, these things are awesome. And, and there was a sense of enthusiasm and excitement that came through on the page. And I think that's part of the magic that Stan really brought to Marvel. Mm. A community, really, huh? It was. It, it was. And, I, and, I, and you could see that in the letters page and what they called their bullpen bulletins page and how they addressed readers and how they talked about their own creative teams, the writers and artists with the nicknames and everything else. You felt like you were in the club. Mm. Was there a specific message that they were trying to carry or were they even trying to do that? I can't answer for what, you know, necessarily he was trying to do, but I think it's certainly safe to say that Stan in that time was building a more um, diverse universe of characters than we even appreciate it at the moment. You know, we all know now what the Black Panther is because we've seen the movie. But when the Black Panther first showed up in an issue of Fantastic Four in the 60s, you know, Stan was really out there creating this stuff at a, at a very early level. And so even the X-Men, which in so many ways, um, represented people who, especially teenagers, who I think felt sort of outcast, he was pulling everybody in. And, and so I don't know how much of it was conscious. I suspect a lot of it was, but I would dare say he probably even uh, was able to touch a nerve in a good way, far beyond what he might have anticipated. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Now, Sensational Spider-Man, that's an, I mean, when you, went over to um, Marvel at that point. I mean, Spider-Man was already alive and kicking, uh, but you you created a new title called Sensational Spider-Man. Uh, what's the, what was the premise of that? Well, I think um, part of it was when Marvel first asked me to come over, um, rather than just taking over with issue number 278 of whatever title might've been, I, I just pulled that number out of thin air, but you know, they said, we want to give you a new title. You'll write it and draw it um, because they wanted to usher in kind of a new era for Spider-Man. And some of that was built around this idea that um, at that time, Spider-Man Spider was married to um, Mary Jane. And, and I think they felt he was starting to feel too old. So they wanted him to feel a little bit younger. Uh, and what they did is they had before I got there, come up with this idea that a younger clone would now be Spider-Man and step in and all that stuff. And so I, I think they were looking for um, perhaps the a solution to a problem that didn't necessarily exist, because I think you could have written the character and made him felt younger without making the drastic changes. And ultimately, that's sort of what they got to. But at the time, with me, they wanted to start a new title, kind of a different... Um, 
sort of Spider-Man character. And, and you know, uh, we jumped on board and did the best we possibly could with it. But I think then they realized that was not going to be quite the proper answer that they wanted to settle on. So is that when they moved you over to the Thor, like the mighty Thor? Well, a actually, so at that point, you know, we kind of agreed that we would take a break and I stepped aside and it was probably about a year and a half later that I went back and then uh, they said, would you like to do Thor? And, and so I gave it some thought and really did a deep, you know, dive on the research that you were asking about earlier. So I, I did that and said, yeah, you know, this is something I'd really have a lot of interest in. I thought there were a lot of good things to say with the character. So yeah, I ended up writing Thor for about seven years. And also Captain America, right? For, for yeah. them as well? Yeah, I uh, both wrote and drew Captain America at that time, yes. For Marvel, I'm sorry, go ahead, James. What was your favorite time or favorite character to work with, work on? Of all time? Yes. Oh, you know, I'm asked that fairly often. And one of the things I tell people, Seamus, is that the character you're working on in the moment always has to be your favorite, right? Because you have to make it yours. You, you, it's almost like an adopted child. You have to bring them in, make it a part of the family, and, and, and just, you know, wrap your arms around that character. On the other hand, it's really hard not to say Superman because... Superman represents so much with comics. And I also think Superman ideally represents the best of who we want to try to be. And so with all of that in mind, I, I generally have to say Superman is the right answer there. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you were over at Marvel, was there one character that you were drawn the most to? in terms of creating? I mean, because I think so much of your career happens at DC and with those mm -hmm. with those characters. So I view the Mar Marvel as more like this little, you know, excursion, like this little vacation in the middle of your career. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a bad, poor choice of words. So I guess, I, so I was wondering, like, was there some character that you were drawn towards or you felt as, you know, connected to? I think, well, when I was doing Thor, I felt very connected to that. Uh, Captain America was a very, very tough kind of book to work on because Captain America is one that I think so reflects society at the moment. Um, if, you, if you give a character the name Captain America, just by virtue of that, they are kind of connected to where we are in that moment. And that becomes potentially difficult to deal with. And part of the problem is every single writer, whoever does Captain America, they want him to stand up at some point and give the all-time greatest speech in comics ever, bar none, right? Because that's who that character is. Captain America stands up and he makes a speech and he sort of inspires the other heroes to follow. Superman doesn't make a speech. Superman is... Um, so respected that he doesn't have to say, come with me. You know, characters line up, the Justice League lines up and it's like, by God, wherever Superman goes, that's where mm -hmm. I go too. Whereas Cap mm -hmm. kind of exhorts everybody to, uh, to, to go fight the battle. Um, and, and that's part of what makes Cap difficult because if you write a speech every issue, pretty soon you're just losing the reader. Um, I think Spider-Man 
is a wonderful, wonderful character. And part of it is because, you know, he has this great origin story where the burglar who would ultimately kill his uncle is someone that ran right past him. And, and Spider-Man let him go and said, okay, so long, and didn't bother to stop him, uh, you know, in the first couple of times he had put on the suit. And I think part of what makes him different then is that he learned the cost of not being a hero. And I think that's part of what makes Spider-Man very interesting to me. So, um, you know, I think as a character, it's easy to see why he is so much the cornerstone of the Marvel Universe. Wow. I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, now, you you eventually, when you make your way back to D.C., uh, there's a bunch of other uh, titles that you have a hand in for certain, but you take over Batman Beyond at some point in, in your timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, wow. So now you've know, you're coming into Batman knowing you've already participated in Spider-Man and Superman, and then you get this opportunity. To, I mean, this is every little kid's dream, right? And then you get the chance to take over Batman. Exciting? It was. And, you know, the... The thing about Batman Beyond that was so much fun is because it takes place, you know, a couple of decades down the road in in the future, it allows you to get freed up a little bit from, you know, what they have as current continuity or anything like that. That, you know, writing the adventures of sort of a newer, younger Batman with Bruce Wayne still there uh, to kind of guide the way. And, and to show him how it's done and to be able to kind of get into, okay, so whatever did happen to the Joker, where is he 30 years from now or the Flash or whatever character, good or bad, that you want to pick out. It was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. I did it for um, a good long time and it was a lot of fun to be able to explore those different aspects of DC's future. Do you have any regrets, Dan? I think we all have regrets. The idea is not to have big ones. Um, <laughs> you know, I no, I really don't. I've been able to do just about everything I've wanted to do in comics. I think I came in uh, and was able to work in comics in a really great time where um, a lot of the old masters um, who helped to create the industry in the late 30s and 40s were still working. And I was able to meet them and, and talk with them and in some cases work with them. Um, and, and that crosses all the way through to seeing the generation of younger creators that we have now who are doing some great stuff. Did you have a mentor? I guess you could say I had a couple of mentors. Yeah, one was certainly Mike Grell. And Mike was writing um, Warlord when I first started. And he had created the character and had written and drawn it. Uh, and the fact that he was in, still involved uh, and working in that capacity as a writer on the book, and he could have conversations with a young artist about art in a lot of ways that editors can't because they don't know how to, you know, and, and most editors can't sit down and redo a sketch and show you what it would look like. So he was certainly one. Dick Giordano, who was managing editor at DC at the time, was one. And then in addition to that, um, I'd also have to mention Walter Simonson, who, when I was a kid, like 14 years old, I had sent him um, a fan letter with some art in it, and he wrote back some very encouraging notes. And so 
certainly he falls into that category as a mentor as well. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Yes. So now I have to talk about Nightwing because right, mm-hmm. Nightwing's one of my favorite characters as well. I mean, he's no Superman, but he's he's way up there. Sure. Uh, so what was it like to take over Nightwing? Um, that was that was difficult. And, and part of it was because when they asked me to come in and do Nightwing, uh, they had gotten to the point with the character where he, you know, he had amnesia, didn't know who he was. Uh, so he wasn't even referring to himself as Nightwing anymore. There were four other characters who were sort of, you know, the idea was it took four other characters to fulfill that role because none of them were as good as the real Nightwing. And um, it's always rough to walk into a situation like that that is what I call mid-story. In other words, they had already built so much of what was going on that was atypical to the book that it became sort of a problem-solving exercise of, okay, how do I reconcile, reconcile all of these different ideas and still find a way to make, to make Dick Grayson true to himself and get back to it being kind of a true Nightwing sort of storyline. And so it, it was a difficult one to take on. Um, it took longer to make those things work out than I would have liked. I would like to think, though, that by the time we got to the end, we made it work. Well, Dick Grayson, for anyone who doesn't know, is was originally uh, Robin, right? Who kind right. of goes out and you know becomes his own superhero inevitably. Uh, and there were there were a few Robins, I guess, along the way, but he's certainly arguably the most popular. Um, and it's it's an exciting title. Uh, I, I wondered, I guess, mostly what what the f- sensation was because he was so established. I think when you took him over, so. I guess that answers that question. What does the creative process look like for you? How do you, I mean, some people, and they need to go for a run before they're going to start writing or they meditate. Uh, What's your process before you begin creating? It's all over the road. And, And some of that, there's no, um, guaranteed way of coming up with a story. You know, it's, it comes from, sometimes out of the blue. And one of the things I'm a firm believer in, Tony, is that um, I will often be amazed at how many times I wake up in the morning after wrestling with a story question or idea or plot device or something for a couple of days, and all of a sudden the answer is there. I, I firmly believe that the mind is working on these things while I sleep and, and sometimes uh, is nice enough to come up with a solution so I have it a day or two later. And so that's one way. Um, sometimes it's a story you see on the news that might give you an idea. Uh, other times it is just being out for a walk and, and you are struck by something. Or you might be in a restaurant and see someone walk in with like, this, this actually happened once, seeing someone walk in that had a very unique cane and just saying, what is the story of that? You know, and then pretty soon you start thinking about that and you add 17 more layers and you have a story. Artistically, it's different. Uh, artistically, I get up in the morning, um, I loosen up the figures, the fingers, I do some quick doodles and, and character sketches just to loosen up a bit and then I can draw. Writing is very different. And um, it's amazing how you can sit in front of a keyboard all day long and get absolutely nothing done. 
But yet the mind has been working that entire time. And maybe what's happened is if I would have jotted down six different thoughts or something like that, I can go back and see the third one I wrote might have something that I can build on. Uh, and then once things fall into place, I can start typing and, and get it there fairly quickly. But um, I, I have to say, I don't think there is any one solid, consistent solution to that. I wish there was because it would make life easier. Sorry, I, I do, as, you, as you were talking, you had, to, you had to warm up your hands. That was amazing. Just to, to realize, just, just to draw was amazing. And I and, uh, never, never even thought about that. But um, I'm, I was a fighter, a boxer, and a right. body, and I was never good at that. <laughs> and suffered because of it. But yeah, so, so warm, up, warm up your hands. And I guess it's, it's all... It's, what's my question here? Um, You must just uh, portray or, or give a part of yourself. What part do you see? Parts of yourself and all your characters. Not all of them, but certainly parts of myself are in some characters more than others. Or, you know, um, something from an experience in the past might be in in some of the characters somehow, or some aspect of someone I know might be in the characters somehow. I mean, as a writer, that's sort of what we do, which is, um, you know, if, if you can think back to someone you might have known, whether it was in college or in eighth grade or whatever, who, who had kind of a unique trait or something like that, that you can pull out and, you know, turn it a couple of ways and extrapolate what that might be now and build it into something else. I mean, we, we are all sort of the sum of our experiences. So obviously it is some of those experiences end up on the page some way, somehow. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So what's your most memorable uh, moment of your career? I've said, let me ask this in two, uh, two parts. One, did you, did you read comic books as growing up? Oh yeah, absolutely, yes. So you were already a fan. Yep. So there is that element of this isn't just a job like, hey, I, I, I you know I, I got a degree and, and uh, I'm very good at writing or, or sketching and I, I got this job. You actually were a fan too, uh, right. moving in. Um, so what's your most memorable moment of your career? Well, you know, it's hard to pin it down to just one. Um the, the first one will be a little, the first one might be a little bit more general. And, and that is the, the death of Superman and everything that happened around that time was so incredibly unique. And, and a lot of it was because it became a national story. And here we were as, as writers wanting to tell the story of a world without Superman. What would that be like? How would the characters in the books react? How would the world, and when I say world, I mean our world in the comic react? And what happened is the world outside, the real world outside my window reacted the same way. Columnists wrote, you know, pieces that kind of address the idea, well, now we no longer have a Superman. What does that mean? Or they killed Superman because he was too square. What does that say about us? You know, so it became a national story where reality was mirroring what we had written about in the pages. We never 
thought anything like that could happen. We, it will never happen again. And it was just this really remarkably weird time to see that happen in a story that I was involved with. But then beyond that, to be a little more specific, the first time I was able to walk into a store and see uh, a comic book, which was, you know, I said I started on Warlord, so it was Warlord number 63 with the DC logo on it that I had done um, on the shelf for the first time. It's pretty hard to beat that. I mean, there's a lot of thrills that come along. You're having a lot of nice moments and get to meet some great people, but there's, there's that idea that finally, you know, you got over that hurdle and you have a book on the shelf. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be pretty amazing. Uh, what do you, can you tell us or share with us what you're working on now? Uh, yeah, so right now, um, I have just taken a break. I am writing a series for DC Comics called Blue and Gold, which stars Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Uh, first issue just came out like about two months ago. So as we speak, I will get back to it, writing issue number six, working on that right now. Uh, have also just got done drawing a story for Marvel for a book called X-Men Legends. And this will be out in a few months. I believe it's X-Men Legends number 10, which will be out in December, I think. And I've also been doing uh, quite a few covers at Marvel as of late. So right now I'm sort of between the both the two places. Any spoilers? No, that's the one thing I can't do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll we'll do it the hard way. We'll wait till they come out. Okay. Now, I guess as a uh, well, let me first ask you for the audience. Uh, where can somebody go who wants just information about you to learn about, you know, your career history? Because it's fascinating. Quite frankly, I think you should be working on a biography. Um, and I hope I, you I, I actually keep toying with the idea because if I did a biography, I could do it as a comic. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I, wow. I, mean, I, I don't like know if anyone would buy it. <laughs> like make yourself the, uh, your own little character. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. As well as everybody else. Um, if, if people want to find out more about me, um, <clears throat> I have a website. They can go to danjurgens.com, um, find out all there is to know, at least that I want you to know. Uh, <laughs> uh, on Twitter, I am the Dan Jurgens, so you can always find me there as well. You do a lot of autograph signings. Uh, you know, I know you appear yes. uh, frequently. What's that like? I mean, because the, the fans go crazy when they see you and they get the opportunity to meet you. How does that feel? Um, you know, it's, I have such a different appreciation for that now because of the pandemic. Um, you know, we went for a year and a half without anything like that. And so I, it really made me appreciate how much the fans depend on things like that, because all of a sudden I was getting all sorts of inquiries and mails. Gee, gee, I can't see you at a convention. I can't see you at a store signing. Can't do this. Um, and and I really became. It gave me a chance to think about how they experience things as uh, instead of how I experience it. Mm -hmm. So um, just uh, in June, we kind of got back on the trail a little bit. I was out in Washington State. Um, uh, I did an event in Connecticut, and in I think two and a half weeks, I. Um, in Michigan for Motor City Comic Con. Um, but the nice thing about it really is that it has given me this whole new way of looking at how 
fans experience these things and how much importance they put on being able to sit down and interact with us, get their book signed and that sort of thing. And it's, it's fun to do. It's, um, you know, when I, we weren't able to get together for a year and a half or so to be able to get back together now and listen to what they have to say and how they react to the product we put out is really good. So I really, I appreciate it. I value just about anything anybody has to say. So it's a lot of fun. You're just a part of people's lives. And then that's so uh, refreshing or so refreshing. So uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, you know what's odd is I always used to look at it that way as being a part of their lives. What I appreciate more and more, and Tony alluded to this earlier, is, you know, the death of Superman now is almost 30 years ago. And so what I have come to appreciate more is I'm not just, it's not so much that I'm a presence in their lives, but I am a presence from their past. And that's kind of what a lot of people um, want to communicate is they, they want to come up to us and say, hey, this is what you meant to me when I was 15 or when I was 10 or 20 or whatever, and get that autograph. And, and they now know with the benefit of hindsight, kind of what the importance of your work meant to them. It might have led them down a particular um, sort of educational road or a place to live or something like that, or help form some ideas or ideals that they had. So that's what also what I've come to see is, is when people talk to me about what it is that stories that I might've done a long time ago mean to them now. And, and that's very flattering. Thank well, you. I mean, you're a mentor. I would think for years worth of, you know, generate, you know, a few generations um, of comic book readers, certainly for that little, you know, that little kid, boy or girl, uh, right, who likes to draw and, and that's their, their primary enjoy enjoyment. Like some, not everybody enjoys classical novels or, you know, what I think is more, you know, a literary fiction or, uh, you know, history or any, you know, level. Some, some people can only relate to comic books. That's what they like. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan all around. I mean, I enjoy any type of reading, but I think that I've known people in my lifetime who only enjoyed reading comic books. And so you're providing this out there, especially for the little boy or girl who maybe doesn't quite enjoy anything but comic books. It gives them the chance to, you know, to, to read uh, a comic book. It also to dream, you know, especially for kids who are being bullied, uh, you know, that there's, that there's good in the world and there's, you know, good people who might help them or there's uh, uh, better ways to behave. Uh, I think that's so important to put that out there, to put that positivity out there in the world, especially for the, for the little ones. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree with that. And, and I think that's where, you know, if they had picked up something I did, say, 15 years ago at the age of 15, now they're 30 and they are better able to look back on that and see or, or address what it may have meant to them. So it's, that's something that I get more and more of all the time now because I've been around for a while. So yeah, it just, I've done a lot of stuff. So it's, it's nice to get that reaction. Well, Dan, I have to say thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. I mean, you, you are legendary um, and you've had such, 
you know, such an amazing, illustrious career. And you've risen to the top of your field for certain. And we appreciate that you took some time to talk to us today uh, and, you know, about all these characters that we all love. As I said, I remember, I still was impacted. I remember when I got that new comic book and I was like, what do you mean Superman's not with Lois? I mean, right. these characters, they matter. We enjoy them. We grow up on them. They make movies out of them for a reason. They do. Um, and um, they, you know, they matter to us as creators as well. And uh, what we try and do is get it right. We don't always, but we, we try and get it right. And it is out of that awareness of what they mean to people. Yeah, thank you, Dan, for coming on today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're quite welcome, Seamus, yes. You're a genius in your field. Thank you. We truly appreciate it. it was thank a you, Tony. It was my pleasure. And I hope when you're done with your next project, you'll come back and talk to us about it as you, as you do new things. I'd love to keep following and keep talking about your new stuff. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say goodbye from us here at It May Interest You to Know. Thank <laughs> you.